Deuteronomy chapter 22 is where we find ourselves. Sunday nights, Genesis to Revelation. By way of a slight review, again, Moses is with the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River, immediately opposite Jericho and just now really weeks away from them uh, making their uh, entrance into the promised land and their conquest of the land beginning with Jericho. And uh, Moses is now here in the book of Deuteronomy giving the children of Israel a, a five-sermon uh, series uh, before they go into the land and each sermon has the same theme the theme of obedience they will be very very successful they will have a blessed life as they would just simply obey his commands we stopped at the at verse 12 last time the end of verse 12 of chapter 22 let me just go up to 9 and kind of establish a little bit of a context heading into 13 which is positively new material this evening for us. He said, You shall not sow your vineyard with different seeds, uh, kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. So they weren't to mix seeds in their planting. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. They were not to mix animals. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. They were not to match, uh, mix those uh, kind of fabrics together. And there's no real, uh, nothing wrong about any of those things. They were just ways that God gave the children of Israel, physical, tangible ways for them to be reminded that they were a holy people. That in the same way these things were not to be mixed, uh, God was calling them not to be mixed with the sin and, and the people of the world. And so just this kind of physical thing that would remind them, that's right, we're a holy people. When he talks there in verse 12 and told them that they shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. And so the Jews put four tassels on the four corners of their robe. Uh, earlier in the law we saw where Moses went into some depth over the reason for it. The tassels were blue. They were the color of heaven. They were to rem there to remind uh, the men and women as they would walk and see these blue tassels. It would remind them of heaven. It would remind them of God. It would remind them that we are a holy people in an unholy world and then remind them to make a stand against the wickedness of, of the world in order to obey God. Now, one of the reasons that I like this, you, when you, I think sometimes when you first read it, you say, can I, can I buy anything with new fabric today, you know, where they're mixing nylon and acrylics and what, all these things, and part cotton and the whole deal. Well, this is the law of Moses. It doesn't, have, it doesn't apply to us specifically except the principles that it teaches. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. But one of the things that I like about this is it really reminds us how much weight uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit carries for us in this relationship with the Lord. We don't need these kind of little laws like this and things to remind us that we're a holy people and not to mix and those things. We say, well, how come we don't do this kind of thing? The Holy Spirit inside of us does the heavy lifting in all of this. I hope that you are regularly reminded, I know that I am, uh, when the Lord says, no, 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 you don't mix those things. You're a holy person. Your God is in heaven. You're in an unholy world. We don't do that as a child of God. Gotcha. And the Holy Spirit's great at that, at reminding us, not only in general, but reminding us specifically situation by situation. My point is there's so much to be thankful for in this new covenant that we're in because of Jesus for being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I, I hope that, that I never, I hope that we never ever lose sight of how amazing it is to hear the voice of God in our heart. To understand a prompting that comes from Him. To have God Almighty uh, communicating to us intimately, personally involved in our life at that crossroad or that situation to speak to us. It's amazing what happens just in the normal 
kind of Christian life, the normal just guy leading of the Holy Spirit is incredibly rich to be indwelt by him and to be led by him. If a man, verse 13, takes a wife, goes into her, so he consummates the marriage, and then he uh, detests her. He doesn't want to be married to her uh, anymore. He wants out of uh, the marriage, and, uh, and he wants to get rid of her, contrary to God's standard uh, related to marriage, the ideal for marriage. He doesn't want to pay uh, the alimony, the dowry that he's given to his uh, when you would buy a wife, you would, uh, when you would have a wife, you would give a dowry to her parents. Some people have called it alimony in advance, <laughs> you know, kind of protection. But you would pay that. And so here's a guy doesn't like his wife anymore, and he'd like to get that dowry back. So he wants to get rid of her, doesn't want to pay any alimony, and he wants that money back on things. And so you're not talking about a very nice uh, guy uh, here. So he char- that, that's in his heart. He wants out of this thing. And uh, he charges her with shameful conduct, and he brings a bad name on her, and he says, this is the accusation he makes concerning her, I took this woman as my wife, And when I came to her to consummate the marriage, I found out that she wasn't a virgin. So he's making up a story here now to, um, uh, he's so selfish and so wanting out of this, he's willing to destroy her reputation and in that Middle Eastern culture, the reputation of the whole family. For her to have reputation of being an impure person in order for him to selfishly get out of, of this marriage. And so he is a kind of guy that doesn't care about anyone but himself. So that's the charge that he makes. This is how it was to be handled. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders uh, of the city at the gate, and the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and now he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I have found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my, mother, my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Now in that day, what they would do is when the new bride and groom would marry and then they would consummate the marriage, a cloth would be put under them, and then the idea was that if she was a virgin, she would uh, bleed a little bit, and then that cloth following that sexual intercourse would then be taken from there and given to the parents as a evidence of her virginity and they were to hold on to that in case this kind of an accusation or a charge uh, uh, you know came up against uh, against their daughter and against them uh, a little bit later and so this was uh, what he's talking about this is the evidence that would be brought uh, out into the open no she was indeed uh, a virgin now you know then then the elders of the city shall Uh, of that city shall take the man and punish him. So if he makes a false accusation, they're going to punish him. Here's the punishment. They shall fine him 100 shekels of silver, which was a very substantial amount of money, and give that money to the father of the young woman. So his name, the name of the family had been shamed. He was to pay for it financially because he had brought a bad name on a virgin in Israel. Additionally, he shall be, uh, she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all of his days. And so uh, there was no way. He had tried to get out of that marriage, and now uh, he was not allowed uh, to divorce her all of his, um, his life. Now, if I was in his shoes... I would feed a little something that she cooked every meal to the dog to see if it lived for five minutes and then I'd eat the meal. I mean, I, I wouldn't defend this guy, not in any way at, at all. And, and uh, so that was the thing that was to happen if he had brought this, this false accusation. Now we look at this and we say, wow, that's pretty extreme. I mean, the evidence of a virginity and, oh, man, I think, what, did we need to know that? Yeah, you needed to know that. It's right there in the Bible. You'd wonder about it someday when, when you read it, if you hadn't read it before. But here's the deal that's going on. In those days... 
is a very different culture than our culture. So in those days, the firstborn son in a family became the patriarch of the family. Uh, they were given double the inheritance of all other sons. And more than, than that, when the father died, they became the leader of the family. They received double of inheritance, but they became the spiritual head of the family. So it was very, very important in, in that culture, very important to the man that he knew that the woman that he was marrying was a virgin and that that firstborn son was his son. And so that's why the stakes in that culture were so high. The reins of the entire family were going to be turned over to this person. And they wanted to know, this is a son that has come from our two lives. But if the thing is true, and she uh, did not, uh, was not a virgin, and evidences of virginity were not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones uh, because of her, her, her sexual immorality and her, her deception and the deception of her family and all of this because she's done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house and so you shall put away the evil from among you. Again, in that culture, so important to, to the par all parties involved that there, was, that there was no kind of sexual immorality that brought into any kind of doubt that this is our child that we're going to turn our whole family lineage uh, over to uh, one day. It tells us a little bit, and this passage gives us a little bit of an insight into the trust that was required of Mary, Jesus' mother, when the angel Gabriel came to her and told her that she would uh, be, as a, as a miracle of the Holy Spirit, there was the conception in her womb of Jesus, it's a complete miracle of God, but that she would be giving birth now and, and to, to the Messiah. At a time when she was betrothed to Joseph, she was not yet married to him, so to turn up you know, pregnant during the engagement period was a pretty serious thing. So when the angel comes to Mary and speaks this, that he, she is the chosen one to do this, and she says, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. This, she was trusting God was going to work this out. Because if he did not work this out, and for her to turn up pregnant while betrothed to Joseph, her end was going to be a stoning. It also tells us something, I think, pretty special about Joseph. That, you know, we look back on the virgin birth of Jesus in the light of the Old Testament scriptures, in the light of history. This was new for Joseph. His wife, he's betrothed to, she's pregnant. So he's really struggling with it. He doesn't want to, you know, expose her and have her be stoned. He loves her. And so he doesn't want that kind of an example being made of her, but he's kind of, you know, what do, we, what do I do here? I can't really marry her because of what I've just talked about, how important it was for that, that son to be their son and all. So then the angel appears to Joseph and says, listen, Joseph, in, in essence, you know, relax about all of this. What's happening here is of God, and she is with child by the Holy Spirit. And go ahead and take her. Uh, as your wife. And so this helps us to understand a little bit of, you know, where Joseph and Mary were, the, the kind of the drama that they were going through in the, in the middle of, of what we call kind of a Christmas story. But for them, it was, uh, it, the stakes were very, very high. Their trust in God was very, very great. Uh, Mary is one of really the most special people in the whole Bible. And uh, Joseph is really, we don't know a lot about Joseph, but very, very commendable in his character and uh, special, uh, special uh, couple of people that we'll one day see in heaven. If a man, concerning adultery, verse 22, if a man is found lying with a woman who is married to a husband, married woman, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, you shall 
so you shall put away the evil from Israel. And so uh, in the, it was a capital crime to be caught in adultery. Again, this gives us insight into John chapter 8. You remember, we've even seen recently on Sunday mornings where the uh, Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by bringing a woman caught in the very act of adultery and throwing her at Jesus' feet while he was teaching there in the court of the women uh, in, at the tabernacle or, or the temple. And uh, so uh, the reason that Jesus and the entire audience would know immediately that these people were not supremely concerned about the law of Moses, but that they were concerned to trap Jesus, which was behind their question. They said to Jesus, the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. What do you say concerning her? And, if, and they were trying to divide his support. He was very, very popular among the common people. And if he said, yep, the law of Moses is right, go ahead and stone her, then that might alienate one part of his following. If he said, no, the law of Moses is wrong and that don't do it, then that would alienate another part of his uh, of his following. So they've got him trapped. No matter where he goes, they think, they're, they're going to harm his reputation. And I'm not going to get into the whole story of how Jesus handled it, but he handled it obviously perfectly. And, uh, but they were trying to trap him with this scripture. But the evidence that they weren't really concerned about the law of Moses, but rather with trapping Jesus, was revealed in the fact that they violated the law here in verse 22, and that they did not produce both the man and the woman. When you catch a woman in the very act of adultery, you got the guy too, and they didn't bring the guy. So uh, a, a violation here uh, of the law of, of Moses. And then in verse 23, if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband. So betrothal in that culture, we have engagement periods, don't we? In this culture, before you marry, you, you get engaged to someone anywhere from 48 hours to three years, depending. I mean, the culture is pretty wild, isn't it, on that? And, uh, but in those days, it was pretty strict, very formal. Uh, most of the marriages were arranged, and so I would be, uh, you, if you were betrothed to a woman, for the time that that betrothal began, it was a one-year period where you, in essence, were married to her almost legally. For, to, break, to break a betrothal, a commitment of betrothal, required a writing of divorcement. That's how serious it was to break a, a betrothal. So for one year, they would get to know one another and, you know, grow spiritually, grow intellectually together, grow emotionally together, this kind of thing. No physical contact. And then when their marriage day would come together, then physically they could involve themselves with one another. So a, a betrothal period was much stronger than our engagement period. It was on a par, just this side of, of, of being married. So if you have a young woman who's a virgin and she's betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her, notice, in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman because she did not cry out in the city and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. And so you shall put away the evil from among you. And so uh, this uh, uh, was more than just sexual immorality. It was considered again to be adultery because of the commitment of uh, of betrothal, the uh, it is considered was considered to be adultery, and that what she was involved in here in this uh, sexual relationship with the man that it was uh, kind of consensual on her part, in that she did not scream or yell or resist him. Uh, and so they didn't consider it to be rape because in the ancient world, the homes, the cities, I mean, everything was so densely populated and so living so closely that if anyone screamed in that kind of, of a circumstance, would have brought, especially in a Jewish culture, would have brought immediate help to that woman. So since there was none of that, um, then uh, it, was, it was viewed as being consensual. On, uh, on both of their parts. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside where uh, 
she can scream all she wants and, and nobody is going to hear her to come to her rescue. And the man forces her, so we're talking about rape here, and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. You shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. It's God considered rape to be a capital crime. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed woman, young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. So yeah, she was given the benefit of the doubt when this kind of thing occurred uh, in the countryside. So under God's law, uh, rape was a capital crime. You were executed for committing it. It's interesting that um, I grew up as a boy in the United States of America when uh, rape was uh, still a capital crime. You got the death penalty. That's the United States of America. It was in 1977 that the Supreme Court of the United States overturned uh, capital punishment for rape, uh, considering it too harsh of, of a, a sentence uh, for, uh, for, uh, for rape. And uh, they said that it only, only for, uh, was only to be for uh, death. And so uh, God, in his word, he feels differently about it under the law of Moses. And uh, the, uh, apparently, as God viewed things, if you went and, and took someone who was guilty of rape and you executed them quickly, uh, it would constitute a deterrent that that kind of deviancy or deviant needs as a deterrent uh, within a, a culture. And at the very least, uh, you would not leave that man uh, to continue to be a repeat offender. I think about how frustrating it is, at least for me, and I'm sure for many of you too, um, it is when some guy gets arrested and he's convicted of rape and sometimes convicted of rape twice and, and all, and then we read that he's raped again. I just, it kills me. It kills me as a man in this culture. I, I hate, I hate living in this time in human history where women have to live in the kind of fear that they, they live in. I, think, I wish things were stronger. I don't know how much stronger and all, but again, we're not talking about taking something like this and imposing it on a culture that's almost lost. We're talking about from the ground up. That was to be the standard. Everybody was to know it, and it was to be a strong deterrent. Uh, for for rape and uh, so this whole cycle of a guy committing three or four rapes before he got sent to prison for good uh, that didn't happen uh, under the law of Moses if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin and, and not betrothed so she's available for marriage and he seizes her and lies with her it's not rape uh, because notice the next phrase, and they are found out. It's consensual. This is consensual uh, premarital sex. And then the man who lay with her shall give the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He's taken what only belonged to her husband, and he shall not be permitted to divorce her uh, all of his days. So when a young man in that culture, raised in that culture, he knew if you had uh, sex with a, a young woman before you got married, you just got a wife. Congratulations. Get your 50 shekels of silver, give it to the dad, if the dad will have you, and she is your wife for life, you never get to divorce her. And uh, so... Uh, Pretty, pretty amazing. The, at the very least, what it would do to young men, young women, but especially young men in a culture, is it would make them think about and slow down before involving themselves in such a thing. To stop and to look and say, do I want to do this and for a few minutes of, of pleasure, uh, do I want to take on the responsibility of a wife and do I want this woman for a wife? And uh, so it, 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 it placed that kind of uh, thinking into the minds of, of young people and would cause you to think twice about giving in to the lust of, 
of the flesh. And it's always good to think twice before giving into the lust of the flesh. Now, some people can look at some aspects of the law of Moses, and we're not under it, you know, Jesus has fulfilled it, but there's wonderful principles for what righteousness is. You remember the law, as Paul talks about it in the New Testament, he says it's like a straight line, it's like a rod that you'd put out, a, a rod that's just straight. And it, it exposes everything crooked around it. So the law is, is good. It's a very clear standard for right and for wrong. And, uh, and so sometimes we can look in this culture and say, well, aren't we so glad we're so progressed and progressive and, and uh, we don't do things that way anymore and we're so understanding. And, but then you look at the, the alternative to it where uh, premarital sex has become... Uh, so widespread in the United States. It's interesting, the latest statistics for the United States in the year 2005 is that uh, 37% of all babies in the United States are born out of wedlock. That's over one out of three. This law would have sealed that up. wouldn't take it away completely, but it would stop that kind of moral hemorrhaging of a nation. That kind of a, a, and I'm not looking, if you have had a child out of wedlock, I'm not looking to pick on you tonight. I just want to talk about this a little bit. I want to talk about how wise God is. Um, no nation can survive those kind of birth rates, let alone an expansion of those birth rates. As we've said many times before, that no country, not even the richest country in the world, can throw enough money at, at a problem to undo the unraveling of the family unit. I think if you were to take in the United States of America and just figure it out in billions of dollars that it costs the United States of America just for that one statistic related to the breakdown of the family, family unit. You only have to talk about gangs and them being a product of the family unit, not doing its job and all. But the family unit has to be kept healthy, has to be kept strong. Otherwise, the healthy family is going to become the minority in the culture, and then you've got a culture that's going to be pretty tough to live in, and it's, you're going to, it's going to be a downward spiral for that nation. So God put things in here and said, listen, you want to do that? You got a wife and you can't uh, uh, divorce her for the rest of your life. A man shall not take his father's wife uh, nor uncover his father's bed. And so sexual relationship with a father's wife was forbidden, this presumably referring to a stepmother, so a, a marriage uh, to a woman other than, than your mother. Interesting to realize we think, wow, I mean, how obvious can that be? And yet in the culture that they were in, and in the degradedness of, of that ancient culture and that part of the world in ancient times is uh, incest was, uh, was common. And so God comes in and says, no, we don't do that as my people. Chapter 23. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So that's self-explanatory. One uh, of, uh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> so... But here, here's the assembly of the Lord was to assemble together at the tabernacle, to assemble together at the at the um, at the tent, uh, the tabernacle, and ultimately at the temple, rather. And and so these were uh, restrictions where certain people were not allowed to gather with God's people uh, for those religious services. It doesn't mean they couldn't have a relationship with God. It doesn't mean that they couldn't be born again and, and on their way to heaven, so to speak. But they, the, these could not enter into the assembly of the Lord. And this being emasculated by crushing or mutilation, this would be uh, the uh, having all of the sexual organs uh, being removed. This was done to men who were going to be working in harems and this kind of thing to keep them from being sexually involved with the king's wives and this, this kind of stuff. And so uh, this was also a pagan religious uh, practice that was, uh, people would perform on themselves and all. So probably refers to a person who has intentionally 
castrated himself for pagan religious uh, purposes. And the Lord said, that displeases me. Uh, I love this person, but I don't want them to have an influence among my people. And uh, so he did not want them to be a part of, of the worship services. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. Now, the, the Hebrew language in verse 2 is interesting because it, this can refer to an exclusion of uh, any child who is born out of wedlock. So it could, it could be that broad, but it, it most likely refers very specifically to a child who was conceived as a result of ritual prostitution or cultic prostitution and so again they were not to be allowed into those services and again they they could have a relationship with God they could be on their way to heaven and uh, but they could not enter into uh, the the worship services of, of the Jews with that kind of a background now the wonderful thing about the New Testament is Jesus said whosoever will may come why do you think half of us are in this room He's opened the door pretty broad. Otherwise, most of us not only wouldn't be able to be here, but to the 10th generation. None of our kids or grandkids or great-grandkids or all the way down the line could get in. So, you know, the beauty of Jesus' fulfillment uh, of, of the law. And a Mal an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because that's a reason word they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you so they were not allowed into the worship services of the Lord ever because they sought the destruction of the Jews of the nation of Israel when they were at kind of a weak point uh, largely defenseless, really had no weapons or anything like this when they were uh, making their way out of Egypt to the promised land. And so these people ganged up on them and, and tried to wipe them out at their moment of vulnerability. And, and so the Lord says they're to be uh, excluded. Nevertheless, verse 5, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not, however, abhor an Edomite. And the Edomites were descendants of Esau, so they were blood relatives of, of the Jews. And uh, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian. So Edomites and Egyptians were allowed uh, to engage in worship with the Jews because you uh, were an alien in his land, the land of the Egyptians, the children of the third generation born of them, they may enter into the assembly of the Lord. Now, sometimes we think of Egypt, we think of Egypt and their treatment uh, of the children of Israel uh, as being uh, always bad, but it wasn't the case. When the children of Israel came into Egypt at the very beginning with Joseph, and uh, Jacob and the 70 and, and all they came in. They were given the land of Goshen. The children, the, the, the people of Egypt were very generous to the Jews. And what Egypt was intended to do for the Jews, take them from being a significant clan or good-sized family of 70 men plus their, their families and then to make them in a, into a nation of 2 to 3 million people, that all happened in, in the borders of Egypt. And it was only later that the Egyptians were using them for and abusing them as slave labor. So the Egyptians were not always hard on the Jews. The Lord took note of it and uh, extends grace to them as a result of it. When the army goes out against your enemies, uh, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. So when you go out to war, uh, these are some specifics that he's given about conducting yourself when you're uh, you know, out uh, in, uh, ready to engage in battle. And if there's any time you want to be right with God, it's when you're about to go into a life and death situation. And so the Lord said, even in how you conduct yourself 
in staging yourself for a battle, I want that to be different than how the other armies uh, do it. He said, if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, so some nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come inside the camp, but it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, and when the sun sets he may come into the camp. And so he was ceremonially unclean, as we've seen in other places in the law of Moses, by virtue of body fluid. And also you shall have a place outside the camp where you shall go out. And the idea, as we'll see in just a moment, is to go out and go to the bathroom. God said, I don't want you just going to the bathroom in the camp. Now, it's a couple, a couple of interesting things. It certainly would be good hygiene. I mean, if you're going to set up a camp and your whole base of operation and you're going to maybe be there for days or weeks or months relate to a, related to a battle, you don't want to do any kind of thing. It's just good hygiene. You don't want to do any kind of thing that will introduce disease into your army. And uh, because disease can wipe you out much in the ancient time than, much more quickly than even an army could. You see, even uh, all through history where uh, significant parts of armies have been wiped out because uh, following a battle and the weakness of the condition, the unsanitary uh, condition of the camp, disease rises up and, and then, they, uh, then they're killed more by the disease than by the battle. And so he said, listen, this is what we're going to do. You have a place to go to the bathroom outside of the camp. And you shall have an implement i.e. shovel, among your equipment, and then you shall sit down outside, you shall dig with a shovel, and then when you're done, turn and cover your refuse. All right? Okay. So that's what you're supposed to do. You just, that's what you do. When you've got to do that, you do that, and you cover it up, and everything's all right. The earth's made for that. Here's the reason. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. This isn't a camp like just any other camp. God walks in the midst of the camp, and, and he is aware of what we do in our most private moments, and he wants them to be done in, in a certain way. So your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you, and therefore your camp shall be holy that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. You're not like everybody else in the world, even in how you go to the bathroom and how you handle uh, refuse on things. Now, it's interesting because what this would, would do, you've got a bunch of guys heading out to war. It's like, who cares? What does that matter? But this kind of thing would already, before they go into battle, it would produce that... A, a disciplined mind. There would be that, that reassurance. This is something you do with some frequency. So there would be that constant reminder that we are God's people, even though we're going out to battle, we don't war like God's people. And, uh, and so, the, so there would be that kind of a reminder. And then no discipline that is occurring in the camp, private discipline in my life, private discipline that God is developing in my life and in their lives, that's going to show up on the battlefield. So the Lord's knocking a lot of things out with, with these kind of things. And so this was how he wanted the camp to be. You shall not give back uh, to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you, he shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place where he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. Interesting, under the law of Moses, the children of Israel, were, the nation of Israel was to be a refuge for runaway slaves. And there were a lot of slaves in the ancient world. If they could flee their masters and get to Israel and get among God's people, among the Jews, then they knew they would not have to be returned to their masters. Now, to, to be a runaway slave in those days, the, the price for it would be typically death. They would make an example of you, and they'd simply whip you to death in front of the other slaves. Or if you did survive, the, if they decided to let you survive, they'd, they'd whip you within an inch of your life. 
to make an example of you. So God's people were to be a refuge for those that were, were slaves. And not only a refuge where God said, and when they come in and they live in your cities uh, and they can afford to live in anywhere they want in that city, let them live anywhere they want in the cities. And don't, don't, don't take them and say, we got you over the barrel, you were a slave over there, and if we give you back, you'll be good for nothing, you ought to be thankful to us, we're going to make a slave of you here. They were to be free people. And they were to have every opportunity a Jew had to, for where to live and how to advance there within the culture. It's really very, very uh, beautiful. God was way ahead of the world in this issue um, in, as, it, as it relates to his, his law. And there shall be no ritual harlot uh, of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one. That's, that's a, a, a homosexual prostitute uh, 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 of the sons of of Israel. So uh, in those days, the nations that were around them, uh, well, how can we put this? Uh, anytime you have men, not all men, but some men, that's a qualifying statement. Don't you go, I don't want you going out hating all men. But anytime you have some men who sit down and say, hey, let's make up a religion. And let's make up the practices of this religion. You can be sure they'll work sexual immorality into it. I mean, what greater way to legitimize sexual immorality than to introduce it into the worship of some god and attempt to sanctify it? And so that's what they did. In the worship of uh, most of the pagan gods of the ancient world, it involved sexual immorality. You would go to the temple, you would worship the god, you would hire a male prostitute or a female prostitute, you would have sex with them, and the idea was that as you would engage in this kind of rite of fertility, that God would then notice it, and He would then make your family fertile, He would bless you with children, He would make your crops fertile, He would increase your, your harvest and that kind of thing. And that's how they looked at things, Baal and some of the other gods, they looked at things. And God said, we don't do that, that's not how, how I'm, I'm worshipped, I don't want anyone to be uh, in, involved in, in that. And depending on the city, I mean, you talk about Corinth, the New Testament cities where, I mean, the prostitution, Ephesus, the temple prostitution, the number of men and women in, involved in it, and the men, it was, it was homosexual uh, sex that they were there for, staggering numbers, and they brought in unbelievable amounts of money to support the temple. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog. The price of a dog is, was the money that was given for male uh, homosexual uh, prostitution, and it was, it's called the price of a dog. Okay, to the house of the Lord your God for any avowed offerings, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So God said, if anyone makes any money off this kind of activity, don't bring it to me. A, a vow would be something where you would uh, say, uh, uh, you, when you would give an offering with a vow, it was saying, God, thank you so much for blessing me with this money. I want to give a portion of it back to you. And God said, don't be given a portion of that back to me. I don't want it. I never... I wasn't a part of you earning that money, so don't, don't give it to me. He, it was an affront to him. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money uh, uh, or food or anything that is lent out at interest. And so they were uh, not to, for a fellow Jew, they were not to charge them uh, interest on any kind of a loan that was, uh, was made made to them. So a person that's going to have to borrow food, uh, borrow money for food, you're talking about someone who's poor. And the Lord really looks out for the poor. And so he said, I don't want you taking advantage of someone that's in that place in, in their life where you take and, and uh, you, you get a loan from, you loan it to them, but you loan it at interest that you know. You've basically economically You've enslaved them for the rest of their life. 
um, sometimes down in Mexico, or you get sometimes more corrupt cultures on things or governments, and uh, you'll see a place where the poor are brought in to work at some of these great ranches and great farms, and there's this store that's a part of the whole thing, and you come in and you can buy, and you can buy against your wage and the whole deal, but the way they work the whole thing and they make the alcohol available in this deal, pretty soon you never, ever get caught up and pay off your loan. They got you for life now. God says, don't be doing that to your brothers. That's not how we, we... We don't take advantage of people in poverty to enslave them. You can enslave economically as, as, as easily as some, some other way. So don't... They're vulnerable. They're in a difficult place. Do uh, good to them. Give them every chance in, in life to get things turned around. To a foreigner... Oh, that's another story. You can charge them interest. The Gentiles... Uh, but your brother you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all uh, to which you have uh, set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. And so a Gentile living in the land of Israel would be living in the land of Israel for purposes of commerce, purposes of making money. And uh, so they were not forbidden to give loans uh, to establish businesses, to expand businesses on the part of Gentiles. That was that what they were free to do. They just weren't to do this to gouge uh, the poor. And then you shall make, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. So when a person made a vow to God, they were to keep that vow. God, I swear, God, I promise I'm going to do such and such. To make that vow under the old covenant to the Lord, you had to keep that. And and God put it in the law. And I think one of the reasons he probably put it in the law, there's a certain kind of person that would never break a vow they made to another human being. But they will readily break their word and their promises to God. And so they were, they were uh, very, very strict over here in this one area, lax in the other area, and God says, don't do that to me. Now the interesting thing is we see here in verse 22, no one was required to, to make a vow. No, God didn't say, now listen, I want you to make a vow to me all the time, and then I'm going to hold you to it. He never required vows of them. But what he did say is if you make a vow, I want you to keep your word uh, to me. But if you abstain from vowing, it's not a sin to you. There's no need to, to make vows. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God uh, what you have promised with your mouth. So it's God says, listen, I, de- I depend on that income. You vowed you know, 600 shekels and things are getting tied up here. I mean, I had a lot of money in that stock market. This is rough for me right now. The point is, by not letting them get away from their vow, is if he just said, ah, vow, shmow, what's the big deal? You you know, just do the best you can and go on. That's no way to raise children. And that's no way to build character. So he didn't want to have that happen. So he said, listen, you need to be people of your word, no matter who you're making that, your vows to, and especially to me, because uh, I'm not going to make uh, liars and uh, reniggers of, uh, uh, of, uh, of their promises and uh, enforce that among my children. Um, verse 24, And when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. Oh, rats, they got them all in. We could have headed out to Gallows Fields and just made a night of it. So you come to your neighbor's vineyard, and the idea is that it's talking about travelers traveling through the land. So you're going from Egypt to Syria or Egypt to Lebanon or whatever it might be, and you're going through the land of Israel. There are no Taco Bells. There's no McDonald's. There's you, you, and, and people were poor. They were migrant workers and this kind of stuff. So what they would do is they'd make their way through and they'd, be, they'd see they're very, very hungry. They see these fields. God has blessed the Jews so much grain and so much uh, grapes on the, on the vine and all. And God said, listen, Jew, whoever, when they're traveling in this way and they come on your vineyard, they can eat their fill of the grapes. They can eat as many as, as they can, can eat, but they shall not put any in, you shall not put any in your container. You don't become a harvester. 
<laughs> enough to eat and continue on to the next field. But you can't be harvesting someone else's field. This is very nice. I mean, the balance of the, the, balance of the grace is just perfect. This just takes, it takes care of you here, but I'm not going to encourage you to say, well, listen, man, this is the best grapes we've had so far, you know. Somebody get that mule up here and we'll, you know, fill these baskets up with this stuff. Does he know us or what? There's you, you know, me. Well, he knows. He's got to put these perimeters on things. And when you come to your neighbor's standing grain, you, uh, you may pluck the heads uh, with your hand. So there's the grain. You can grab it with your hand. So you're not reaping. You don't got the sickle out or anything like that. It's just enough for you to eat right now. You can go ahead and pluck that but, and, and eat it. But you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. You remember this happened with the disciples where uh, Jesus was with the disciples and they were hungry. Just the very purpose for this, which this was written. They were hungry. They took some of the wheat and they began to uh, work it to remove the chaff and they began to eat of it. And then the Pharisees came to Jesus and uh, accused him of, why aren't you stopping your disciples from you know, harvesting this grain? Because it was happening on the Sabbath day. But this was something that Jesus understood and his disciples understood as something that was free to do uh, under the law. Yeah, we'll go a little bit further in this. When a man uh, takes a wife and he marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, she remarries. If the latter husband detests her, or whatever, and then writes her a certificate of divorce, Ends the marriage, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house. Or, if the latter husband dies who took her as a wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she had been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so this law uh, contained a very, very specific restriction. Uh, a man who divorced his wife and who subsequently, the wife subsequently remarried another man, he was not free to remarry her under any circumstances. Now, a divorce under the law of Moses. And we're going to get, this thing's going to go around circle to come to Jesus because it helps us understand something about uh, one of Jesus' teachings and a significant incident that occurred in his ministry between him and the Pharisees. The, uh, a divorce under the law of Moses declared three things. Moses does here. It could only be on the basis of some uncleanness that the husband found in his wife. So something very, very significant and uh, truly serious and, and legitimate grounds. It was always to involve a, cer a certificate of divorce that he was to give to her. In other words, when he did this, it was to be formal. It was to be official. And that would allow her to remarry uh, in, 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 you know, safely in the eyes of the Lord. Then number three, the husband was not free to remarry his wife if she married someone else after their divorce even if uh, the, it was her second husband uh, was gone out of the picture now because of death. So this law clearly was intended as a protection to the institution of marriage, even among uh, God's people. There was to be no casual marrying, divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying. There was not to be any of that kind of thing. And what it would do... In a husband, and, and, and it's a good thing in a culture. So it sounds like I'm picking on the guys a little bit here tonight, but we'll get you gals in, sometime in the future. But it's never a bad thing for God or anyone to stop a husband uh, who is, um, you know, has a good thing in his wife. 
He's just being stupid. And to stop and make him realize, if you do this, you lose her for good. You can't ever come back and have her again. That's over. So listen, buckaroo. This is like the new Damien Kyle Living Translation. <laughs> listen, buckaroo, you better think this through real, you know, carefully. Because there's no going back on, the, on this thing. And uh, so it would, um, the husband would have to really uh, count the cost of divorcing uh, his, his wife. And uh, lest he divorce her and then regret it later. And so the law surely had that kind of an element to it. Now, it was concerning this passage that the Jewish religious leaders, again, they tried to trap Jesus on the issue of divorce. And they came to him and that recorded in Matthew chapter 19. They said to him, and they were trying to test him. They weren't concerned about what the law of Moses said. They were trying to divide his support again. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife uh, for just any reason and uh, so uh, that's the question that that they were asking of him and again they're trying to divide his his support he's very popular at the time that they posed this question to him and they felt that if he looked and said no you can't divorce your wife for any reason it would he'd lose some element of support if he said yes you can divorce her for any reason then he'd lose another part of the support so they feel like he's got no way out if he says yes or no he's he's going to lose some some level of his popularity now the thing that the Jews uh, debated concerning the law of, of Moses, and they were good at debating, the rabbis were, uh, a lot of debate was given uh, concerning the definition of some uncleanness. There in verse 24, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 24, he finds some uncleanness in her. So having found that, he, he has under the law of Moses a right to, uh, to divorce her, but with these severe kind of restrictions. Now, the Jewish rabbis kind of split into two very different camps on the definition of some uh, uncleanness. There was a conservative camp that was led by a rabbi by the name of Shimei who defined some uncleanness as being some sexual immorality. So he came down and on the side of things is God is only allowing a divorce here in this situation because of of the most serious kind of violation of of trust and and faithfulness uh, in the marriage. And so he interpreted uh, uncleanness as referring to sexual immorality. Now there was a liberal camp uh, among the Jews led by a rabbi by the name of Hillel and he felt it can't mean sexual immorality. And and the reason he felt it couldn't mean sexual immorality is if she was guilty of sexual immorality, under the law of Moses, he could already get rid of her by exposing her, and she'd be stoned to death. So the sentence for sexual immorality was stoning, so he felt, no, it, it, it has to be something less than sexual uh, immorality. And, and so the great debate then became... Uh, what is it that, you know, is this lesser thing that could displease the man? And the followers of Hillel, Hillel taught that, he could, that the man could divorce the wife over any issue that, disple- that, that she displeased him in. So if he didn't like how she was aging, if she couldn't produce a child, if she didn't like his cooking, too much salt on the eggs... He's feeling assaulted. Okay, you're still with me. This, that's terrible. But you know, that's the sad thing is I like stuff like that. That's the only humor I like. Ridiculous humor. Okay. So, I ruined the whole thing, haven't I? Just destroyed it. So, the, uh, this was the kind of, you could divorce for anything. And what that did is, though under the teaching of Hillel, is it made women very, very vulnerable to frivolous divorce. And divorce has severe economic and and emotional and all kinds of other consequences. In this culture, it was times ten in that culture. So uh, this really made the women, put them in a terribly vulnerable position, this interpretation by 
uh, by Hillel. And so that was the trap that they had set. If he, if he goes with Shimei, he loses the liberal group. If he goes with Hillel, he'll lose the conservative group. And, and his following was made up of, of both kinds of people. And Jesus avoided the controversy there in uh, Matthew chapter 19. And he avoided the controversy by declaring that the law of Moses did allow for divorce but only because of the hardness of their heart. He said uh, to them, he said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So what does Jesus do? Jesus said, I don't want to talk about the law. That was given for the hardness of, of heart. I want to go all the way back to the Father's intention for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Let's go all the way back to there. And he quotes the intent of marriage from Genesis chapter 2, the original intent of marriage, and he answered, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And then Jesus gave his stamp of approval to uh, that Genesis chapter 2 definition of, uh, of uh, one man, one woman remaining uh, together through life, you know, unless there's death or, uh, uh, you know, divorce allowed under sexual immorality. He said, uh, so then uh, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He cited on the side of Shimei, on the conservative uh, side of things, that a man and a woman uh, uh, would marry and that they would uh, not divorce one another, that he takes them all the way back again to God's original intent for marriage there in the book of Genesis. And on the, on the basis of Genesis chapter 2, Jesus again, he, he uh, sides with the conservative camp of Judaism uh, regarding divorce and, uh, and declared that it was only to occur on the grounds of sexual immorality. And, uh, and what that did is just simply underscored his uh, deep concern for the permanence of marriage. Jesus is very concerned about Christian marriage. And uh, because more than even in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, marriage was what it was. It was the, the building block of, of civilization and, and, and cities and a nation and all those kinds of things. For us as Christians, every single day, Karen and I are not only married to one another for, for mutual blessing, and I speak for her on her behalf, she can correct me later, I feel blessed, but, um, but also we have a responsibility to represent the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church and the world. And people ought to be able to look at her life any time in the course of the day and see how the church submits to the loving headship of Jesus and, and then they should be able to look at my life and how I treat her and, and see me treat her in the way that Christ uh, treats and loves the church. And, and so Jesus very, very uh, concerned about uh, Christian marriage, the permanence of marriage, and so that's to be our standard too. There's not the, the grounds for divorce uh, or sexual immorality. That's the side that he came on related to that. Well, we'll stop there tonight, and uh, we'll pick things up in verse 5, uh, Lord willing, in uh, of chapter 24 next week. That's a good thing.